We'll open your Bible there to the book of Genesis, chapter number 5. Genesis, chapter number 5. Well, I'll make a confession to you today. This sermon is a, a rerun. This is one I preached it in 1977. So <laughs> that was 43 years ago, and many of you weren't born uh, some of you weren't old enough to know what was going on if you had heard it. And some few of you might have it in your Bible. I have people come up to me every now and then and say, they will say, you preached that sermon in 1982 or something. They marked it in their Bible, the text. Okay, if anybody's got, a, if anybody's got this one written down from 1977, you win the prize today, okay? Uh, I remember getting this outline because back in those days I preached outlines, and most of the time I borrowed them from other people. And I remember getting this outline from some little old uh, sermon book, and didn't have any content. It just had four or five points, and I took it and worked on it. So here it is again. I've rehashed it and retreaded it and uh, all that. I hope today that you will be blessed. Genesis chapter 5 in your Bible is really an ancient obituary column an ancient obituary column. I don't know how many of you read the obituaries. People don't read the paper like they used to. Dr. Lakin said he got up every morning and read the obituary column to make sure he wasn't in it. And so uh, I don't know if you checked it today or not to make sure you're not there. But this is an ancient obituary column. It's real simple. Go down to verse 5. We'll start. All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And eight times in this chapter, it says that about various people. And he died. You go down to verse 8, it talks about a man named Seth, Adam's son. And at the end of verse 8, and he died. Verse 14, it talks about a man named Canaan. And Canaan lived and he bore some children, and he died. And we go down to verse 17, and we have Mahalil. And he lived, he had some children, he died. And Jared in verse 18, and in verse 20, and he died. And then there's an exception, a man named Enoch, a picture of those who will be raptured away. He didn't die. And then down in verse 27, he had a son named Methuselah. You've heard of him, the oldest man who ever lived. And verse 27, the end of the verse, he died. And then you go down to verse 32, and it talks about Noah. And then all of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 is about Noah. But then you come to the last verse of chapter 29, and you come to that phrase, even Noah, and he died. And so it gives the name of each of these characters. It tells how long they lived. It tells us if they had children, and then this repetitive phrase, and he died. So the subject today is how will you die? How will you die? America is being forced right now to think about death. In fact, the whole world is having to think about death. 
I want to tell you, that's good. That's good. To begin with the end in mind is an integral part of every plan. And your life should be planned around the fact that, dear friend, you ain't going to be here together or forever. You're not going to be here forever. And America is being forced with this pandemic to think about death. Now, you've heard me say before, I think we've been living in a make-believe world. We've been experiencing Disney World. I mean, boy, easy credit, easy life, answer to everything, and not much thought about the end of life by most people. We've been living in Disney World for a long, long time. But right now, we're being forced to face a sober dose of reality. In fact, we've encountered something now that science and technology can't fix. We don't have any scientific, technological, man-made answers for the virus right now. And so we're face-to-face with the grim reality that we're going to die at some point. Someday it will be said of Bill Monroe, and he died. And it will be said of you, my friend, and he or she died. That obituary for you will be written. A man came to his pastor. He said, Pastor, some of us have been thinking that you're preaching about death way too much. It's just too somber. You need to be a little more positive, a little bit more inspirational, a little bit more uplifting. Preacher, you're just talking about death too much. The preacher said to him, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a promise. You quit dying, and I'll quit preaching about it. I'll make you that promise, but you can't make me that in return because we are going to die. There was a woman I read who, brought, uh, who had a friend who was unsaved. And oh, how she wanted that friend to come to church with her. She had invited this guy over and over and over for years on end. He had no interest. One day he said to her, I'm going to go to church with you. The years had passed. I mean, she was elated. And so Sunday morning, while she looked up, he was getting in his car. She led him to the church, and he attended the service and sat right beside her. And the pastor came to preach, and his text was Genesis 5, same text I'm using And he pointed out that it was an obituary column, an ancient one, and he died, and he died, and he died. He went down through it just as I've done. Well, the woman was sitting there. I mean, she was sweating. She was cringing. He kept on talking about death. She was just mortified that the friend had come to church for the very first time, and this is what he gets. Why, he'll never come back. The pastor extended the invitation at the end of the service, and when the altar call was given, the man walked forward, and he knelt down at the front at the altar. Someone led him to Christ. He came face to face with his own mortality, which is a good thing and a healthy thing. God, help us that we don't require people to do that more than we do in our world today. Richard Baxter was a Puritan preacher. And he preached during the 1600s. His books are still being read today. Wonderful, wonderful man of God. 
And Richard Baxter was addressing a group of young preachers back in that day. And here's how he described his preaching. He said, I preach as never sure to preach again. Now think about that. I preach as never sure to preach again. In other words, every time I preach, I preach as if it were my last message. And he said, I preach as a dying man to dying men. I preach as a dying man to dying men. God grant that I would have that urgency, that desperation, because we're dealing with eternal verities, eternal truths, ladies and gentlemen. As much as you don't want to hear it, the day will come and it will be written, and he died, and there will be the dates in the obituary. So the question is not will you die, the question is how will you die? I don't mean when I ask my question there about uh, will you die of a heart attack or will you die of uh, cancer or will you die in an automobile accident or will you even die of COVID-19. I'm not talking about how you die in that sense. I'm talking about how you die spiritually, your spiritual condition when you die. I've read I guess now thousands, at least hundreds and hundreds of sermons. I've read all the great preachers that, whose sermons have been published, Luther and Spurgeon and Calvin and Moody and all those. And I observed something in their preaching you don't hear today. I observed that they talked much about deathbeds, dying episodes. They talked about visiting a man, visiting a woman, visiting a child. The person was on their deathbed, they were dying, and yet at the same time, they were conscious. And so they would talk about their relationship with the Lord. Some of them died with great fear and loathing. Others of them died singing, rejoicing, praising God, depending on their relationship with the Lord. And I read those accounts, and I thought, I haven't had but one or two of those in my entire ministry. You know why? People don't die conscious anymore. They are shot so full of morphine, they don't know what, they don't have any clue. Even long before they die, they're, they're, they're gone. And so we don't get the chance to take the gospel and sit beside them as they pass into eternity and read them the Psalms of comfort or urge them to make their calling and election sure. They pass out into eternity and they're not even aware that they're alive or that they exist. Well, today there's some people in the Bible. I want to tell you how they died. The first one, you may want to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. The first one I want to tell you about is in Luke 16. It's about a rich man and a poor man. They died. The rich man is described here in Luke chapter 16. I'm reading in verse 19, there was a certain rich man. He was clothed in purple, which was a color that only the rich could afford because the dyes were expensive. He was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously. He ate well every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus. His name is given. He was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs. He was starving to death. He wasn't faring sumptuously. 
the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died. Okay, there it is again, and he died. He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died, and he was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. The rich man, two men died, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man went to hell, not because he was rich, because he was not prepared. The poor man went to heaven, not because he was poor, but because he was prepared. The rich man had a big, a grand funeral, big crowd of people, lots of friends coming back, consoling his family. But in verse number 23, it says, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes being in torments, unprepared. He had a fine casket. You could smell the money on that funeral. They had beautiful, beautiful flowers, and a lot of them, but he was in hell. The insurance man came by, gave his widow a big check, but he was in hell. In hell, he lifted up his eyes. His body was taken out there, and a big crowd gathered around the funeral tent, and they laid him down into the soil. His body was in the ground, but his soul was in hell in torment. He planned in his lifetime for everything. He had it all put together, and he tied the ribbon tight. But he didn't prepare for the most important thing, and that was the day he would meet the Lord. The poor man went to heaven. No big funeral, no fancy flowers, no big crowds of people to mourn him. Maybe he had a family, probably didn't from what it says here. He didn't have any friends. But you know what? Who would you rather be today? Because he was prepared. He was prepared. As a minor prophet, we call them minor prophets because the books are not very long. They're just as important as the others, what they say. His name was Amos. He was a country preacher. And so he didn't varnish anything up. He just stated it the way it is. And the old country preacher, the husbandman, the farmer preacher, his theme running throughout his book is very simple. Prepare to meet your God. I often quote it. You've heard me a hundred times if you attend our church here. You've heard me use it. It's just such a natural thing to slip into when you're about to give the invitation. Prepare to meet thy God. Let me ask you a question today. Are you prepared, my friend? I don't care if you come here every time the doors open, and I don't care if you live across the world. One thing we all have in common, we will die. And the question is, are you prepared? You know, the Bible tells us. I, I always remember, I wrote this down in my Bible as a teenage boy. The little Bible that I had then, I still own today. And I had the four R's of salvation which tell you how to prepare. If you're not prepared, listen to me very carefully. Let me tell you how to be prepared. One, realize your need, your condition. You're lost. If you have one sin upon your record, you're unprepared to meet God. Your sins must be forgiven. God is a holy God. So first of all, realize your need, and your need is that you cannot save yourself. 
No matter how hard you would try, no matter all the good deeds you would ever do, you cannot save yourself. Number two, recognize, there's the second R, realize, recognize what Jesus has done for you. Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. Now, the gospel, Paul says, is that Christ died for our sins. He died for your sins. He died for this rich man's sins, this poor man's sins. He died for the sins of the world. Christ died for your sins. He was buried in the ground. Three days later, he arose again. And that is the good news. The good news is that your sins have already been paid for. Everything for you to be saved has been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. What Christ has done on your behalf is, uh, there's no way I could describe how much he's done for you. The love of God that he showed toward you, the grace of God that he extended to you. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, that's the good news. That's the gospel. The bad news is we're going to die. The good news is Christ died, rose again, and lives today and has done everything necessary that you can be prepared just as that poor man was in Luke chapter 16. So realize your need. You can't save yourself. Recognize that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for you to be saved. And number three, repent of your sins. Repentance, I, I think you have to repent before you can truly believe. What is repentance? Repentance is a very fundamental change of mind and heart. A very deep one, not a superficial, oh, I know that I'm not perfect, not that stuff. But repentance is, is coming to the place that, man, I've got to do something about my sins. I have got to turn. I've got to change my mind about what I am, not just what I do, but what I am. Somebody said that repentance is a change of mind about your sin, about yourself, who you are, and about the Savior, that Jesus is the only way for you to be saved. And so you realize your need. You can't save yourself. Your condition is beyond that. You recognize what Christ has done on your behalf. You repent of your sins, and you receive, fourth R, receive Christ as your Savior. You trust Him and Him exclusively. You cease trying to work to obtain salvation, and you just put it in His hands. You just hold out your hands and let him give you the gift of salvation right there in your hand. Like a beggar, you extend your hands. And he gives you the wonderful gift of salvation. Now listen to me. Don't miss what I'm telling you. This is important. The most important thing in life deserves the most thorough preparation. The most important thing in life deserves the most thorough preparation. Are you prepared? Lazarus was prepared. The rich man was not. But I have to hurry now. I'm slowing down too much here in the book of Matthew. Just flip back a book or two. Chapter 27. It's the story of the cross. Christ is being crucified. And Judas comes. Verse number 3. Who had betrayed him the night before when he saw he was condemned. He repented and brought the 30 pieces of silver that he had accepted for the betrayal of Christ, threw them down at their feet, the feet of the religious leaders, the priests and elders of the people. 
And he said, I have sinned. Oh, here's a man who recognizes he has sinned. I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, well, that's not our business. What's that to us now? And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple. He departed and went out, and he hanged himself. He died. The rich man died unprepared. Judas died unfaithful. You know what I've always thought about Judas? I've thought he was the sharpest guy in the 12. He was probably the most intelligent. He probably had maybe even the most leadership. After all, he was the most trusted. It says they gave him the custody of the bag, meaning where they had the money that they carried for the group. So they trusted him with their money. And he was a sharp guy, and he heard Jesus preaching one day. And Jesus is talking about a kingdom where he is going to come back and rule in that kingdom. He's talking about the glory of God will be surrounding that kingdom. And this man, Judas, his Jewish patriotism flared up within him just like it does in the heart of a good American sometime. He knew how Rome was oppressing his people. He knew that they were not free. The Jews were chaffing under that at that time in history. And so his patriotism flamed up within his breast. He saw the crowds following Jesus. He saw Jesus doing all these miracles. He heard his wisdom when he taught. He thought, man, I've never seen anybody like this guy. This is wonderful. He is the Messiah. And Judas signed on. He became one of the 12. Jesus chose him that night that he chose the 12. But then a year or so later, a year and a half later, Jesus started talking about dying. Five or six times he said the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to raise again, rise again. And Judas heard all this. And slowly, slowly, the crowds began to ebb away. The tide turned. He remembers the day that the Lord came and stood in front of the twelve. Tears were in his eyes, welling up. And Judas looked at him and said, or heard him say to the twelve, Will you go away also? Everybody else has abandoned me. My followers have not been loyal. Will you go away also, Judas? And Judas thought, everybody's leaving. The dreams of that kingdom and the glory are fading away real fast here. He probably thought, you know, I didn't sign up for this. That day that I said yes to him, I'll follow you, I wasn't planning on this. I had something else in mind. And so the plan began to form. He went to the chief elders and the priest. He cut a deal. I'll identify him in midnight when he's praying over there in that garden. I'll kiss him on the cheek, and you'll know he's the one. And he did it, and he took that money, dirty money, blood money. He took that money and betrayed the Lord. 
he died unfaithful. He turned his back on what he said he was. Somebody says, how could, uh, how could Judas lose his salvation? My friend, he didn't. He never had it. Jesus said he was the son of perdition. He was the son of hell from the beginning. I have heard people say, well, why do you think Jesus chose Judas? Didn't he know that he would abandon him and turn his back? Sure he did. I don't know why Jesus chose him. I have a better question for him. Why do you think Jesus chose me? Why do you think he chose you? You and I think we're better in character and more intelligent or more understanding. Do we have attributes and qualities that Judas didn't have? I don't think so. He was a sharp guy. But here's the problem. His motives were wrong. His motives were wrong. Listen to me. In the middle of this pandemic, don't you think it's a very important thing that we examine our heart? That we become introspective for a little while. Occasionally we look down inside and say, why am I following him? Why do I call myself a Christian? Why do I follow Christ? Let me tell you something, folks. Your motives are all important Judas followed Jesus because he was ambitious. He wanted to be a a key player in that kingdom. And when those dreams melted, he had nowhere to go. But why are you following Jesus? Why do you go to church? Why do you call yourself a Christian? See, in America, and particularly here in the South, and I rail about it all the time, I know, but I've just watched this kind of nominal cultural Christianity till, oh, I, I, I just, I don't understand it. Why put up the pretense if it isn't a reality in your heart, my friend? Why do you call yourself a Christian and be unfaithful to him? Judas died unfaithful. Oh, God help that you not die like Judas. There's another guy in the Bible that it said he died. You go over to Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5. And there was a good church member there. He was a Christian. He was active in that first church. Acts 5 and 1, a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a possession, kept back part of the price, his wife also uh, uh, being a part of it. He bought a certain part and brought a certain part of the money from the sale of that property and laid it at the apostles' feet. But God gave Peter real insight that day, and he said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not yours? You didn't have to give any of it, but you lied about it. And in verse 5, and Ananias hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. His spirit departed. Ananias died. He died unclean. Was he a Christian? Oh, I think he was. I think unquestionably he was a Christian. He was active in that church, but you see, he had a secret. What was his secret? He owned this piece of land somewhere, and he saw other people getting a lot of praise 
lot of acclamation as they contributed everything that they had. These people were given everything. Well, he didn't, he didn't have to give, but he sold the land. And because he loved the praise of man, because he was a proud man, pride was the motivator. He wanted to stand up in front of the church and say, we sold this piece of land. We're giving it all to the Lord. And he did. And he lied not only to the church, but he lied, Peter said, to the Holy Ghost. And worst of all, he lied to himself. He thought, well, nobody will ever know. Now, did Ananias go to heaven? I think that he did. But I'll tell you how he went. He went unashamed, or he went ashamed. I'll tell you how he went. He went dirty. He went with smudges on him. True, the grace of God covers that. People go to heaven who die with sin in their life. Yes, by the grace of God, praise God, that every single sin you've ever committed doesn't have to be verbally confessed before you go to heaven. None of us deserve to go whether we confess or don't confess. If you've received Christ, you'll be in heaven. But the question today is, Christian, is your heart clean? If you were to have to meet the Lord, or is it dirty? Do you have secrets? Has there been deception? Has there been hypocrisy in your life? Jesus said something in Luke 12 that ought to haunt us. Whatever you have spoken in the darkness will be revealed in the light. And that which was whispered in the ear in the closet will be proclaimed from the housetop. There will be no secrets in that day. And that day when we meet the Lord, the secrets will all be revealed. The dirty laundry will all come out. You don't want to die with that on your conscience. Today, my friend, if there is secret sin in your life, get on your knees. Go somewhere where you can be alone. Take a walk. Get on your face before God and say, God, my life is duplicitous. My life is not straight. It's not a life of integrity. There's some things that people don't know about. If they knew about it, they would lose a lot of respect for me. But it's time for me to humble myself and for the pride to go. Lord, I want to die clean, ready to meet you. Another one is the next chapter here. Book of Acts, chapter 6. Well, those, you know, people haven't changed much, have they? Chapter 6 and verse 1 In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there was a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, the Joneses against the Smith, Smiths in the church. Somebody felt like they were being neglected. So, what did the disciples do? They called the congregation together. And the disciples appointed um, deacons the first time. We call them deacons. It doesn't say that in the text, but at least they appointed seven men. Verse 5, the idea pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and it goes on names the rest of them. In verse number 8, 
Stephen, though, was distinguished. He stood out among those deacons. He's full of faith and power, and he did great wonders and miracles among the people. God gave him miracle-working power. And if you'll look there in verse number 13, as he was witnessing, as he was witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ, a religious crowd rose up against him and uh, set up false witnesses, which said, this man blasphemes. Well, of course, he was doing far from that. He was simply telling them about Christ, but they considered that blasphemy. And so... uh, they bring this false charge against him. Now, go to chapter 7. They brought him here before the council and most powerful group in Israel that day under the Roman government. He gives the whole history of Israel. And we come down to the end of chapter 7, a very long chapter, verse 54. When they heard these things, the story that Stephen had told them, they were cut to the heart. They were under conviction. They gnashed on him with their teeth. That means they were grinding their teeth in anger. And he being full of the Holy Ghost, like a good deacon should be. Good deacons witness because they're full of the Holy Spirit. They can't keep from it. And Stephen, that deacon, he's in trouble because he's been witnessing. And he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he has the power of God upon him. And he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand. And he said, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing there. And the crowd cried out with one voice. They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear anymore. They charged him, and they began to throw stones at him. And they killed him, the very first martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ in Christian history. And he died. And he died how? Unafraid. He died unafraid because he had an impeccable testimony and life. He was simply doing what spirit-filled people do. He was witnessing for Christ, and it irritated this group of religious hypocrites there. They charged him, and they stoned him. They killed him. But you know what is beautiful and precious about this passage. It says, as he was dying, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And what did he see? Jesus, listen, standing. Every other time the New Testament talks about Jesus, he is seated on the Father's throne in heaven. But he stood up. Why did he stand up? Because he has a soldier coming home who's been killed in the conflict, but who faces death without fear, without compromise. He faces death just like Jesus faced his death. Without bitterness and anger, he faces death like his Savior had faced it. And I picture Jesus standing up from the throne and extending his hand and saying, Welcome home, old soldier. Welcome home. He died unafraid because his conscience was clear. There's one more. Philippians chapter 1. It's a man that we call Paul, but originally he was called Saul. 
He died unashamed. Where do I get that? I get it from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. According to my earnest expectation, he writes, and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. There he is. He died unashamed. In nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always that Christ can be magnified in my life, whether it's by life or whether it be by death. Saul was born in an upper-class home in Tarshish, outside the parameters of Israel, but he was a Jew. His parents had probably moved there, like many Jews did in those days, to make money. They were ambitious people. He was raised there, and obviously they were an upper-class family. They had money because Paul was sent to study with Gamaliel. In those days, people didn't go to the universities. There were hardly any, maybe one in the world at that time. And so they would study under these people who had prepared their life and to be experts in some field. Gamaliel was one of them. You see him also in the book of Acts. Widely respected, a renowned scholar. And he became the mentor, the tutor of this little young man who came and studied with him, Saul. And so Paul, by the time he writes this, is an intellectual. When God chose Paul, he chose him because he obviously needed somebody who had the the brilliant mind to explain Christianity to people who knew nothing about it in the primitive world. And so this towering intellectual, Paul, Christ confronted him. He's on the way up to Damascus to persecute the Christians. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself steps out of heaven and comes down to Damascus Road, and he confronts Paul directly. Paul sees him, meets him. Who knows what all happened in that meeting? We know that after that, shortly Paul leaves and goes down into the deserts of Saudi Arabia. He spends three years there, and he has these revelations. God teaches him, and he writes, and he constructs basically the doctrine for the Christian church. And then he comes back, and he becomes a missionary, and he travels all over the Middle East, and he starts these churches. He establishes how many churches? We don't know. And then he writes letters back to them in which he expounds the doctrines of the Christian faith. And we have that now preserved for us in our Bible. Now, Paul said, as he writes these words, he says, my goal is that I never be ashamed, that I never in any way disgrace my testimony. I want to die unashamed. Well, they arrested Paul finally. Nero's on the throne of the Roman Empire in Rome, and Paul's taken to Rome. He's put under house arrest, and then he's imprisoned. He sits there in prison. I picture him. Prison was not like it is in America today where people watch widescreen TV all day. Prison in those days was a dungeon, a hole in the ground, the Mamertine prison. You can still visit it in Rome. And Paul sits here at his little table trying to write his letters. Drip, drip, drip. The water down the wall. He hears a little flurry, and it's a rat running across there because they were all infested, those prisons. 
snitch, snitch, snitch. He hears the foul on the sword as the executioner is preparing to take him. And his head will be chopped. He will die another martyr. But he died unashamed. His last words are recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's how to die unashamed. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes to Timothy, his young protege, who will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. This is what's important to me, he's saying. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Don't be changeable up and down. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. You've got to know your doctrine or you can't live for Christ. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Maybe he was thinking about our generation. After their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They will turn away their ears from the truth. The truth will be turned into fables. Watch in all things. Endure affliction because it will surely come. Do the work of the evangelist. Witness, preach, proclaim. Make full proof of your ministry. I'm ready to be offered. I'm ready to die. The time of my departure is at hand any day now. I have fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Don't forget that. Big reward coming, Paul, which he said, the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day, and not me only, but unto all of them that love his appearing. The last words of the Apostle Paul, what words they are, if you want to die unashamed. Question again, how will you die? How will you die? I can tell you, you will die as you lived. You will die as you lived. And five minutes after you die, your position will be fixed for all eternity. There'll be nothing you can do to turn it around. But I have some good news for you. Let's say that there's someone watching today, and God has really touched you as I've preached. And you'd like to receive Christ right now. I'm going to pray with you what we call the sinner's prayer, just a simple little prayer to invite Christ into your life. Now, I go back to my four R's with you. And the first one is, first of all, realize exactly where you are in your life, that you can't do anything about your sins. Then recognize what Jesus has done for you that he's paid the price for your sins already. You don't have to go into eternity and pay that price again. You realize, you recognize, you repent of your sins. Change your mind about the whole direction of your life, and you receive Christ by faith. He promised you that if you'll call upon him, he will come into your heart, your life. He'll save you. 
Now, I'm going to pray, and if you're unsaved today, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just repeat the words after me. It's not the prayer that saves you, but it's the desire to have forgiveness of your sins and to know the Lord, to trust Him, to have Him come in to live within you. Heavenly Father, I realize today that I am lost. I know that I cannot save myself. So, Lord, I come to you to do for me what I can't do. Save me, Lord. I recognize that Jesus died for my sins. And so I accept him now. I repent of my sins. Help me to have victory over them as I turn to you. And I receive you as my Savior today. In Jesus' name, amen.